0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, whether it's on your phone or one of these, turn to the book of Nehemiah. If you don't know where that is, that's all right. We're not there much. It's about a quarter of the way through. In my Bible, it's like here. This is my dad's Bible, actually, and he's here. But Nehemiah chapter 13, I'm going to be reading verses 23 through 27 in a little bit. But first, I have to say, well, I'm, I'm Tyler. Um, I'm honored to be preaching today. As is typical, I'm also terrified, very nervous. Um, but this morning, I'm actually preaching about two books. So you're turning to Nehemiah 13, uh, which is the last chapter of Nehemiah. We're also going to be talking about Ezra, which is the book right before it. And if you're wondering why I'm talking about two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, it's because these two books originally, in our Bible, they're two, but originally they were one. Um, there was the Ezra section and the Nehemiah section, and they were kind of stitched together to be one cohesive work. So maybe it's crazy to do two books, but I can say that they were one because they were. Uh, they're also, just as a little history lesson, they're, they're very late in the game, like Old Testament history-wise. And this will probably be review, but I think context is really important. So this this is the story of the Old Testament where Ezra and Nehemiah fit in, right? So God created the world, made Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned, kicked out of the garden. And then later, God chose Abraham and said, from you will be my people, the, the nation of Israel. And so they came. They were brought out of Uh, they were brought out of captivity in Egypt through the exodus, that's the second book uh, became God's nation at Mount Sinai and God gave them laws, like a list of this is how to follow me, this is how to treat me like I'm God and the people of Israel said, yes, we will follow that I don't really want to unscrew this every time but I don't know where to put it so it'll work so Israel made this covenant with God, said, we will follow you. And for like 800 to 1,000 years, they didn't do that. They really almost never followed the laws that God gave them that they said they would follow. And after 800 to 1,000 years, they were exiled. They They were kicked out of the promised land. The northern part of Israel was taken to Assyria. The southern part was taken to Babylon. And I tell you that whole story to tell you that Ezra and Nehemiah takes place after all that. So, very late in the game. And I also think that that is worth spending a couple minutes on because we don't talk about these books a whole lot, right? Um, But some of you listening have talked about these books a lot recently. Uh, You may not know this, but a week ago yesterday, so not yesterday, but a week ago yesterday, I and some of the students got together. Uh, We were in here, actually, like right over there. And we did a study on Ezra and Nehemiah for five and a half hours. We went from like 8.30 to 2. I did give them breaks to go to the bathroom and play basketball and eat lunch. I, I did give them that. But we, yeah, we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah for five and a half hours. And if that is making you a little nervous that I'm standing up here about to preach on Ezra and Nehemiah, you think it's going to be five and a half hours, it's not. None of you want that. And I probably won at least of all. Um, so my goal this morning, again, is not to go for five and a half hours. It's not to read every single chapter of Ezra and Nehemiah and hit every single little detail. Although there are a lot of really cool little details. You can ask the kids about it. I hope they remember some of it. But that's not my goal. I, I don't think that's realistic or necessarily even helpful for this morning. My goal is much I don't want to say smaller, but it is much simpler than that. I I don't want us to read every chapter, go through every verse, talk about every little detail. All I want this morning, so this is the, if you only listen for the main idea, this would be a good time. Um, All I want from this time is for you to walk away knowing what these two books, that get ignored a lot, what these two books teach us about ourselves and in doing so, how they point at Jesus. I'll say it again. I am hoping that through the spirit, you will see this morning what these books teach us about ourselves and how they point at Jesus. That's my goal. So in doing this, I'm actually not not totally sure. And this is a thing that I like. I hope that it's helpful. Um, when I try to find a place to start, when I have to, when I get the opportunity to teach, I, some of you caught that. When I, when I get the opportunity to teach, sometimes I think the best place to start is the most confusing place because it kind of gets us thinking. So for better or for worse, that's what I have decided today. So we're in Nehemiah. We're in Nehemiah 13. It's the last chapter. Um, I'm going to read verses 23 through 27, and then I'm going to pray. So, if you're able to stand, if you can't, that's fine. But if you are able, could you stand in honor of God and his word? Um, I'm going to read Nehemiah 13, verses 23 through 27, and then I'm going to pray. So, here we go. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them, and I called curses down on them. I beat some of the men, and I pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like this that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women." Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? I'm going to pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your spirit, and I thank you for your spirit's role in composing this book that we have the Bible. I thank you for the passages of Scripture that are wonderful and speak to us immediately. and and touch our hearts and that we can walk away after five seconds and just really be impacted and changed. I thank you for those. And I also thank you for passages like this that we have to do a little bit more work with to understand. I pray that you'll bless me as I share your words with your people. Um, I pray that it's your spirit speaking rather than me. And I pray that we will know you. So I thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Uh, Please bless it in your name. Amen. So, you guys can sit down. So, Nehemiah 13, 23 through 27. Let's just take a moment to reflect on, them, on these verses. They're very odd. We don't need to hide from that. These verses are kind of strange. Um, like we have Nehemiah. This is Nehemiah doing this. He's the title character of the book. And we have the title character of this section of, of Nehemiah. <laughs> Cursing his fellow Israelites beating them up, rebuking them, and pulling out their hair. He's beating them up, he's rebuking them, he's pulling out their hair, because they married women who weren't Israelites. He's like really, really freaked out about this. And maybe it's just me, but on first glance, this kind of seems like an overreaction. Like, this seems like a lot, right? Like, he, they married non-Israelites. They married people that clearly Nehemiah was not happy about the marrying. And his response is to beat them up, curse them, rebuke them, and pull out their hair. It, it seems like a lot to me. Um, and this is not the only strange section of Ezra and Nehemiah. Like, there, there are some things in this book that are just, they're just odd for when you read them first time. We, we have references to these, like, strange locations, like the Tower of Ovens and the Sheep Gate and the Fish Gate. Like, wh- what are these places? We, in, in Ezra chapter 4, in the Ezra section, the, I'll talk about this more in a second, but the Israelites are rebuilding the temple, and there's these people that want to come help them. And the Israelites say, no, get away. We don't want your help. Which is odd. Like, a small nation coming back from an exile. Why are you rejecting the people that want to help you, right? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't that help? The, the end of the Ezra section, actually, is... At, one of my commentaries called it one of the least attractive chapters in the whole of the Old Testament. The, the Ezra section of the book ends with a bunch of Israelites divorcing their wives and sending their wives and children away in the rain. It's really strange. And so I think our best bet to understanding what's going on in this book, and again, with the end goal of what it teaches us about ourselves and how it points at Jesus... I think the, the best way to do this would be to take a couple minutes and talk about how we got here. So again, I'm not asking you for five and a half hours. Just give me a couple minutes. Um, let's, let's talk about the rest of the book before this chapter. So as I mentioned earlier, Ezra and Nehemiah, very late in the game, takes place after the exile. And to be more specific... What Ezra and Nehemiah is telling us, the story that's being told, it's recounting Israel returning from exile and rebuilding their temple. This one's a little more complicated, but rebuilding the law. We'll talk about that more in a second. And rebuilding the walls. They're rebuilding their temple. They're rebuilding the law. And they're rebuilding their walls. And this is a big deal. Like, Israel coming back from exile is a very, like, big deal. It's a very important thing in the story of the Old Testament. Um, I hope some of you are familiar with Jeremiah. He was a prophet. He lived right before the exile and then kind of into the exile. So he was before and during. And I would say most, like, a lot of Jeremiah's prophecies are kind of sad. Like, he, he's lamenting. There's a lot of grief involved. Because he's reflecting on 800 years of disobedience, and God is speaking through him, and there's just a lot of grief associated with that. However, there are some some prophecies of hope sprinkled in, especially in the middle of the book of Jeremiah. It's where we get Jeremiah 29:11. Which, sorry, mom, it's my mom's favorite verse. She's also here. My mom hates when I mention her when I'm in front of people, but I, it was organic. I didn't. It's not on my notes. So one of the one of these hopeful prophecies that were that. Jeremiah gave was, as these people are going off into exile, he, he was a prophet when the southern part of Israel was being moved to Babylon, kicked out of the promised land. And Jeremiah, as they're going, God gives him this prophecy that this exile is only going to last 70 years, which is maybe not helpful for the people being exiled, but 70 years later when this book is the events of this book are happening, that would be a little exciting. And it's more than just that. It's The exile is going to end after 70 years, and when you come back, God's going to make a new covenant with his people. Which for, for people who were steeped in the Old Testament, who, who knew the law of Moses, who believed that it was good and right for them to follow, the idea of a new covenant was really exciting. Um, I, I have You don't need to turn here, but I'm going to read a couple verses out of Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 31. I'm going to read verses 31 through 33. It says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So, not only has Jeremiah and other parts of his book told the people that the exile will last 70 years, not only is there going to be a new covenant, but God, through God, Jeremiah tells the people that they will receive a new heart and a new spirit at the time of this new covenant. So for the person... Let's... A little exercise. For, for the person who comes to this book and say 300 years before Christ, 400 years before Christ, I, I, I give you all this backstory to illustrate that for that kind of a person, the tension would be very high as they read this book. Because they would know the Old Testament. They, they would... like if When I was teaching the kids, I said if the, if the Bible was a chapter, like a more conventional chapter book, the chapter before Ezra and Nehemiah would be Jeremiah. So... The, the reader comes to this and they've just seen all this about in Jeremiah about new heart, new covenant, new spirit, 70 year exile. And they see at the beginning of the book 70 years have passed the people are going home. And they get excited. The, the tension would rise. Is, is it time for the new covenant? Like we see God's people coming back. Is it time for the new covenant? Is it time for the new heart? Is it time for the new spirit? And even more than that they might start thinking is it time for the Messiah? Like is is this figure that's been that's been hinted at, talked about, mentioned throughout the story of the Bible? Is is that person coming? Is is that figure coming? Is it finally time? So again, I I, I give all this backstory because I think it's important for us to realize that this book is a page turner. Like again, if you come to this book the first time, there are a lot of lists in this book. When you read it all out loud, you're painfully aware of all of the lists of names that are in the book. But for for someone coming to this wondering if it's time for the new covenant and the Messiah, this is a very, very exciting and engaging book. And as we read the book, that tension builds. Like you get more excited as you read this book because the, the beginning of the book has three sections. Um, th- three sections of rebuilding, like I mentioned earlier. And each of the sections has a different main character. So, In Ezra one through six, in the first six chapters, and I this is one of my favorite Bible names. In the first six chapters, we have Zerubbabel, uh, who is from the royal line of David, and Zerubbabel leads a group of exiles back to the Promised Land, and they rebuild the temple. So Ezra one through six, Zerubbabel leads a group; they rebuild the temple. Ezra seven through ten, Ezra. I would rather be redundant than have you confused. In Ezra 7 through 10, Ezra leads a second group back. And I said they rebuild the law. And what I mean by that, cliffhanger. And what I mean by that, when I say that they rebuilt the law, is that in Ezra 7 through 10, the Israelites begin to worship God through following the law again. As they, as they were supposed to do under the covenant with Moses, so they were doing in Ezra and Nehemiah's generation. In, in Ezra 7 through 10, they begin worshiping God through the law again. So in Ezra 1 through 6, they rebuild the temple. In Ezra 7 through 10, they rebuild the law, start worshiping God through the law again. And in Nehemiah 1 through 7, Nehemiah, fittingly, leads them back, leads another group back, and they rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And if you're wondering, like temple seems important for worshiping god law seems important why do the walls matter this this book is about rebuilding the nation of israel in a world without planes that drop bombs and even really without catapults a wall is a critical part of rebuilding yourself as a nation like it's it's crucial because then a marching army can't just walk into your front door They, they have to go through a big wall so zerubbabel leads them to rebuild the temple Ezra leads them to rebuild their worship of God through the law. And Nehemiah leads them to rebuild the walls. And in all three sections, there is opposition. It is never easy. There's opposition from without. There's people around them that want to stop them from rebuilding. And there's issues within. The Israelites themselves have problems during this rebuilding effort. But in every case, with the temple in Zerubbabel, with Ezra in the law, and with Nehemiah and the walls... They succeed. So tension building. Every time you get to the end of a section, they've succeeded in rebuilding some part of Israel. And then, after everything's been rebuilt, in Nehemiah 8 through 12, the Israelites renew the covenant. That that covenant that God made with Israel and Moses after they got out of Egypt... This new generation, Ezra and Nehemiah's generation, they renew the covenant. They commit to following God again. They, there's kind of a beautiful chapter, Nehemiah 10, where they reflect on the history of the Old Testament and all of the ways that they've fallen short, and how they are so thankful for God to God for still allowing them to be with Him. They reinitiate sacrifices at the temple. They get they get some priests back in there. They get some Levites back in there. They repopulate the city of Jerusalem they dedicate the walls to God and say that like these even these walls are holy we will not do anything improper or impure around these walls and it's like it's beautiful like it's just systematically renewing the covenant with God and i paused here with the students and i want to take a quick pause here as well and just just do a thought exercise right contemplate what what would this book teach us if Ezra and Nehemiah ended after Nehemiah 12? I'll drink my water again to give you a moment to contemplate. If this book ended after Nehemiah 12, it would be a very happy ending. Like, it truly would be. We, we would have this, this wonderful book, two books in our Bible, where God's people would have finally figured it out. They, they would have finally figured out how to worship God. They would have done it despite opposition. And we would have seen amazed, like, faithful, amazing leadership from Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the people. And it would be spectacular. It would just be a beautiful picture. However, as I hope is painfully obvious, the book does not end after chapter 12. There's one more chapter. And at last, we come to Nehemiah 13, our text. So this is Nehemiah 13. After everything is rebuilt, after everything is renewed, Nehemiah leaves. He goes back to, it was Babylon, now it's Persia. Uh, but he goes back and then a few years later he comes back to Israel to, to see the promised land again, to see the people again and see how things are going. And after he leaves and comes back, here's what he sees. He comes into, He comes into Jerusalem, the holy city, the capital, and he goes to the temple and he sees that it's in complete disrepair the israelites have stopped giving money to the temple they've stopped offering their sacrifices the way that they should it's actually so bad that the priests and levites that were brought in there are gone and they're they're not even it doesn't even say they're necessarily gone because of their because they're being disobedient they're gone because they're hungry like they're, they're gone because they can't feed their families off of the temple offerings because nobody's bringing them. So, so the priests and Levites have left the temple, gone back to being farmers for the sake of keeping their families alive. So the, that beautiful section in Ezra 1 through 6 about we've rebuilt the temple, we've started worshiping the log, and we celebrated Passover again, cross that out. That, that hasn't stood the test of time. It's been a few years and the priests and Levites are out because they can't feed their families. So Ezra 1 through 6, let's, that, that's not happening. And then Nehemiah turns around and he looks and he sees not foreigners, Israelites. He sees the people of God buying and selling and trading on the Sabbath day. And sometimes there are Old Testament aspects that we have a hard time with because we aren't familiar with all of the laws of the Old Testament. But I think we know this one, right? This is one of the commandments. Like, do no work on the Sabbath. And yet the people of God in the city of Jerusalem are buying and selling and trading on the Sabbath. So temple worship, no, that's not happening the way it should. Worship through the law, no, that's not happening. Remember Ezra's section? They're not doing that. They're, they're buying and selling and trading on the Sabbath. And so Nehemiah kicks them out. He says, no, get out of here. Don't buy, sell, and trade on the Sabbath. And they walk out of Jerusalem. They take a hard left. And they sit down and they set up shop with other merchants and traders right next to the walls that have just been dedicated. Like, it's literally two chapters before. Like, Nehemiah 13 is this story. Nehemiah, like, 11 or 12 is where they're rededicating the walls and saying, we want nothing impure or unclean near these walls. And in Nehemiah 13, just a few short years later, these merchants who are buying, selling, and trading on the Sabbath are doing it next to the walls. They're desecrating the walls. So, the temple worship, not happening, cross that out, Ezra 1 through 6. The worship through the law, cross that out. They're buying, selling, and trading on the Sabbath. And even the walls that were dedicated to God, they're being desecrated. These people who are, who are breaking the law are doing it by the walls. So that Nehemiah 1-7 through 7 section about these wonderful walls that got rebuilt despite the opposition, cross that out. That's not happening either. In like 20 verses in the 23rd chapter of Ezra and Nehemiah, everything from the past 22 chapters is systematically destroyed. Like everything that has been built up, everything that you're excited about, the tension is, is rising through the roof as you see the new covenant. Everything that's been built up is destroyed in 20 verses in chapter 13. And it's in light of this that we come to the section that we read, Nehemiah thirteen twenty three through 27 Nehemiah sees all of this, sees everything they've worked for destroyed, and then he looks and he sees the Israelites are marrying non-Israelites again. Which, I didn't have time to really go into this, but the, the theme of Israelites marrying non-Israelites and it being a stumbling block and, and a problem for them is common throughout the Old Testament. I mean, that's why he mentioned Solomon, king of Israel. But it's even common just in Ezra and Nehemiah. Like, the, like this is a theme. And just a few years after, they've, they've got everything set up. Leaves comes back, it's happening again. And it's in light of this that as we saw, as we read, Nehemiah freaks out. He loses control, he curses them, he beats them, he rebukes them, and he pulls out their hair. And let me just say, I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that if somebody is not worshiping God the way you think they should, you should curse them, beat them, rebuke them, and pull out their hair. Don't rip out their beards. Don't do any of that, please. That's not, that's not the point here. The, the point is, the, the reason this is the text, and the reason that I bring this up is that for the reader... Who came to this book with anticipation, who is looking forward to the new covenant, who is hoping for the Messiah, who has just spent twenty two chapters getting their expectations built, who 's very excited, their reaction is probably similar to Nehemiahs, right like like what are you guys doing, Israel like you had everything handed to you on a silver platter, you had wonderful leaders, you, you actually did it all right, you had the temple back, you were following the login. You had the walls built, you dedicated it all, everything was set, and now look at you. You couldn't even make it 10 years. Maybe 12 years. You couldn't even make it 15 years. So, and and this is how the book ends, too. It's not like there's some like nice 14th chapter that brings it all around. Like This is the end of the book. Like the, After the verses we read, Nehemiah exhorts them, stop breaking the law, he calls on God to remember his faithfulness, and the book ends. So, for the reader who's coming to this with anticipation, who's, who's super excited, who, who wanted to see the new covenant, who wanted to see the new heart, the new spirit, and maybe even the Messiah, this is such a depressing, strange, and anticlimactic ending to the book. Everything's built up, and it just ends with a trickle, or really just with a wasteland. Like You're expecting at the end of this book the beauty of of covenant faithfulness, of of worshiping God through the law, the, the way that they were called to from the times of Moses on down. And instead, Ezra and Nehemiah ends with Israel just as sinful and rebellious as they were before the exile. The actions of the people are showing that their hearts are still broken. Nothing has changed. That's Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the follow-up, right, is, is so what? Like, what, what is this? Like, I said at the beginning, I wanted, to, I wanted you guys to walk away with what this teaches us about ourselves and what it teaches us about Jesus. And I think in getting at that question, or that discussion, I need to start with something like, very, very important to know. Like, this is like a crucial, a crucial thing that we should take from Ezra and Nehemiah. And This is an excuse to say Zerubbabel again. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah—all three of them—Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah—they are all genuinely good leaders. They are all good. They are all wise. They—they they all face opposition, and they, through it all, remain deeply committed to following God. When we were doing this, with, when, I, when I was going through this with the students, there were a few times where we would read a couple chapters and like go to talk about them. It's like, we really don't have that much to talk about. Like, Nehemiah's just killing it. Like, he's just doing everything right. Like, nice job, Nehemiah. Like, they're actually good leaders. And, it, like, additionally, along with this, it's not just the leadership. Like, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah are good. The people of Israel do a lot of really good things in this story as well. They do commit to building the temple. They do commit to following the law. They do commit to rebuilding the walls. They do repopulate the city of Jerusalem. Some of them move from where they've lived for a long time to go repopulate Jerusalem because they're committed to God. They want to follow the covenant again. If I were to, if you were to give me like one guess on if there was a generation that could have done it, that, that could have brought a new heart and a new spirit, that, that could have initiated the new covenant, this generation might be a good guess because they do a lot right. However, even set up for success, they still fail. <laughs> even even after twenty two chapters of hope, chapter twenty three, we see that same old sinful heart that we've had since Genesis three. And in this, in in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and the faithfulness of the leaders and the failure, even when they could have and some of us might say should have succeeded, we learn something that's absolutely timeless. Like it it was true of their generation and it's true for our generation as well. It's true for every single individual. We cannot solve sin for each other. Like, I cannot solve your sin problems. You cannot solve my sin problems. And even more than that, we can't even solve our own. Like, I can't even solve my problems with sin. Like you, you cannot solve your own sin problems. You can't solve your own sin. Like this wonderful, faithful generation of Ezra and Nehemiah could not do it. And neither can we. This, this new heart that Jeremiah is talking about, this new heart is not something that humanity can work for. Like, I can't, I can't work hard enough to attain it. You can't work hard enough to attain it. I can't give it to you and you can't give it to me. This new heart that Jeremiah is talking about is not something that we can give but only receive. We can't give it. We can't take it. We can only receive it. And in making that point painfully clear, one of my commentaries called Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, a flashing neon sign. Like it is, Ezra and Nehemiah is this bright beacon that's pointing forward. Because if in the whole story of the Old Testament, no human being can give the new heart, no human being can initiate the new covenant, no human being can solve sin. If Ezra and Nehemiah is one step in in making that point painfully clear, then it's pointing forward at the need for someone more than human. It's pointing forward at the need for someone who's more than us, who can actually give the new heart and the new spirit, who can actually initiate the new covenant. And it's in doing this that, I mean, without ever mentioning Jesus by name, Ezra and Nehemiah, you're not going to find the name of Jesus in Ezra and Nehemiah you're actually not even really going to find much talk of a Messiah. That's not, that's not the way that it's being communicated. But without ever mentioning Jesus' name and without ever talking about the concept of a Messiah, we walk away from Ezra and Nehemiah with this like heaviness, like the, this burden of our own sinfulness and our own need for a Savior. And so it's in this that Ezra and Nehemiah teach us something about ourselves and something about Jesus. Like, even though they never say his name, you walk away heavy. You walk away knowing that you need something more than yourself. And I'll take a couple more minutes. The next question is like, what do we do about that? Right? Like, cool, Tyler, I walked away from this book feeling sad about the heaviness on my heart and my need for a savior. Where do we go with that? And I would invite you, in light of all of this, to look at yourself. Is it possible at all, like is there any chance that it's true, that you think that by your own faithfulness or by your own work, you can influence salvation? And that might be abstract, so I'll make it try to make it more. I was going to say relatable, but that's kind of a youth pastor word. Um, I th- I think this can come out in two ways. This this idea that if I'm faithful enough, someone will be saved. Um, I think on the one hand, this can come out in the way that we evangelize. I th- I, I think it can come out in our conversations with people about faith. Um, I think it. Okay, I'm talking to you guys, but this is like I'm talking to myself more than anyone else. Like, I struggle with this. I struggle with thinking that my own faithfulness could save. I, I, even preparing this sermon, I feel like if I could just prep this sermon just right, if I could just practice it just right and then proclaim it just right, it would change all of your hearts. Your hearts would all be turned. You would recommit to Jesus. You would, you would follow him more deeply because I was faithful enough or when i'm when i'm prepping a lesson with my students or when i see a kid who comes in that i haven't seen before i just i have it in my brain like if i'm able to talk to this kid well enough they'll become a christian if i teach well enough in this bible study they'll become a christian if if i if i or you or we if we're in the mall and we get into a conversation and it turns to religion if i can just make jesus attractive enough or if i can just Say the right words to this person, they will be saved. If if I'm at work and my coworker and I are talking over lunch and well, not really relevant for me, but if, if I and my coworker are talking over lunch and again it, it turns to Jesus. If I say the right things about Jesus, they will be saved. If I'm in school and I'm at track and I go for a run and I'm running next to this kid and and something turns to spirituality, if I twist it in just the right way. I can get him saved. My, my, my faithfulness will do it. If that's you, if there's a chance that that's you, because again, that 150 percent is me, you can tell, because I got into a cycle. If that's you, I want you to know that you're putting a burden on yourself that's not meant for you. We are not called to save people's souls that's not what I'm called to. Even though it's really tempting to think that from the pulpit that if I that if I teach with this really nice pulpit and I drink my water at the right time and I I just say just the right words that that my faithfulness in doing that will save someone's soul. It's not my job. That's not your job either. My job is faithfulness, but it's faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel. Like my job is sharing the news that That Jesus the Messiah lived a perfect life, died, and was made alive. And that that's the only thing that can pay for my sins. My goal is not to save your soul. My goal is to tell you that. And that should be our goals. Nothing more and nothing less than sharing the news of the Messiah. So maybe that's you on the one hand. On the other hand... Maybe you've thought that if you were just faithful enough, if you worked hard enough, that you would be able to save yourself. That if you cleaned yourself up enough before you went to God, if you read the correct amount of Bible verses, if you prayed enough, if you came to church enough times, then God would accept you and you would be saved. And Again, this is honesty hour. Like, that won't work. You, you will never be able to be faithful enough to, to make your way up to God. You will never be able to work hard enough to grasp, grasp salvation. You can't do that. It's just not attainable for us. It wasn't attainable for Ezra and Nehemiah's generation either. The thing to be thankful for In that kind of like profoundly sad picture, is that God has given us some more revelation since the days of Ezra and Nehemiah? Like, they walked away with this heaviness and and a glimpse forward at a Messiah and a need for him. We know his name. Like, we know that we can't save ourselves from sin, but Jesus can. Like, he actually is able to give the new heart and the new spirit. He's the one that actually initiated the new covenant. Jesus actually can save you. And the best and craziest and wild part is, like, the, the Messiah that was prophesied, there's nothing you have to do to get salvation. It's given to you literally as a gift. So, if you're willing to accept that gift, please do it. I, I would really invite you to do that. Like, th- throw yourself upon the mercy of God because God himself is the only one who can give the new heart, the new spirit, and salvation. It's only him. It's, it's only through Jesus. And that is what Ezra and Nehemiah point to in, in some small way to give us a, gl- a glimpse. So that's all I have. I'm going to pray. I think we have one more song. Um, but I thank you for letting me preach this morning. Dear Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that it... Uh, let's be real, Lord. I thank you that it chokes me up when I'm not expecting to get choked up. I, I thank you for your faithfulness in allowing me to proclaim the good news of your son. I thank you for the way that Ezra and Nehemiah adds to that picture and gives us another another ray or another glimpse of your son. And Jesus, I thank you for living the life that I can't live and dying the death that I was supposed to die for me and for us. I pray that I can continue to know you more every single day and understand more of you and your love. And Lord, I thank you for the gift of salvation that you've given me and all those who are united with you. I love you, Lord. Amen.